But uh, yeah, we went um, hiking and riding in the mountains. It was great fun. Um, uh, I'm uh, really looking forward to uh, my last few weeks with you before your new pastor arrives in March. Uh, I've been trying very hard to fit uh, some Sundays in here. Uh, unfortunately, I'm going to be away for a few weeks after today, but then I'll be back for a few more. I've got to go to Zimbabwe. We're, going, we're getting a new bishop of Zimbabwe, which we're going to go and consecrate. And hopefully, if they let me back into South Africa after that, I'll, um, I'll continue here. Um, we're in Romans, and uh, as you know, last term, uh, we were working through some of the big key verses in Romans, and I thought I can't finish uh, where we left it off at chapter 11, because actually uh, what I really want you to uh, get is that you cannot disconnect uh, Romans 12 to 16 from Romans 1. To 11. You can't disconnect the indicatives from the imperatives when it comes to the gospel. And it would be wrong for me to just leave you hanging at Romans 11, although you could probably pick up the Bible yourselves and read it. But it would be wrong for me to leave you hanging at chapter 11. Last year, if you remember, is this working? Did, did you get my stuff? Look at that. Isn't this a great new data projector as well? You can actually see things now. You guys just pretended you could see the thing last year, eh? Um, you're welcome to take a picture of this, like I say. And by the way, if you also want to see all my stuff, this is shameless advertising, but it is free. If you go to presidingbishop.co.za, um, my secretary collects all of the stuff and all of the series that I do, studies, talks, and stuff like that. It's all on one uh, website called presidingbishop.co.za. It's free, so I can advertise it. And you can go and see these series there. Uh, last term, we uh, looked at those first uh, four sections of Romans, first five sections of Romans, uh, asking this question, what is the gospel? And then unpacking what it is in all of those sections, that we need the gospel because all of us are sinners, fall short of the glory of God. The heart of the gospel is that we are justified by faith, chapter 3 to chapter 4. Uh, the great comfort or the assurance of the gospel uh, is given to, uh, through God uh, saving us and his Holy Spirit at work in us, chapter 5 to chapter 8, the great plan of the gospel, the sovereign plan of God to save people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And part of that is what God is doing with Israel. That's chapter 9 to 11. And then this final section that we're looking at, these first two introductory verses today, is looking at the transforming power of the gospel. Like I said, we can't leave this out. You, uh, the gospel is not just indicatives, it's also imperatives, chapter 12 um, to chapter 16. You can't stop at understanding and ignore application. You can't have intellectual assent without physical obedience. You cannot disconnect chapter 12 to 16 from the gospel message that Paul gives us in Romans. So as we prepare to look at these first two verses of Romans 12, which really form the introduction to chapter 12 to 16, and carry everything in there. They really are probably the most familiar verses in the New Testament. I'm sure if you've been a Christian uh, for any length of time, you'll know these verses off by heart, I'm sure. Uh, let's pray as we come and look at uh, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 12. Father, uh, we do want to thank you for your hand on us over this time uh, as we prepare to 
can start it with a new year, schools going back tomorrow, students going back to varsity, all of these uh, beginnings help us to come uh, to these very familiar words for many of us, um, looking to you to bring them to life in our hearts and minds um, and, and bring the life of uh, Christ through us by the power of these words. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Um, and I'm trying to stick to a theme with uh, these uh, um, passages from Romans. This one is gospel transformation, but perhaps if I was a bit more cynical, I was going to call it the forgotten Christian life because it does feel as uh, we've come through these two years um, that not only have we masked our faces, but we've masked our Christianity in many ways and uh, got distracted and got a little bit waylaid and perhaps because things have felt so urgent, we've got more involved with urgent issues and perhaps given our time and mind to issues and um, the turbulence in our world and perhaps even getting caught up in fighting causes instead of fighting sin. And so many time-wasting traps have um, snared many of us um, as the government forced us to stay home and watch Netflix. And in doing that, we, um, we perhaps have been chasing distractions instead of pursuing holiness. It's why it's so important that you read on from chapter 11 and apply chapter 12 to 16 as we understand the gospel and its implications in our lives each day. It's understanding the connection between gospel and life, and it is critical. We cannot disconnect them. We cannot make Christianity just an intellectual exercise. It's impossible. It can't, Christianity cannot be an intellectual exercise. Uh, it is our life. Uh, and Romans 12 onwards brings it home so clearly. So let's have a look, first of all, at this connection between the gospel and the Christian life. And the gospel of mercy is what Paul finishes on here and begins on in chapter 12. Therefore, verse 12 says, verse 1 of chapter 12 says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. You may know this. This is the biggest therefore in the Bible. This therefore does not just refer back to the last few sentences. It refers back to everything Paul has said in chapter 1 to 11. Uh, the entire message of the gospel can be summed up in these two words, God's mercy. God's mercy. Uh, in view of God's mercy is saying, in the light of what I've said, chapter 1 to 11, here's what we do. In the light of what I've explained to you, chapter 1 to 11, here's what we do. And he sums it up in these two words, God's mercy. You want to sum up chapter 1 to 11? God's mercy. Um, cannot emphasize that enough. The gospel is not God's advice. Paul doesn't say in view of God's advice. Uh, this is not God saying, come on, give it a go. It's going to be good for you. Uh, an apple a day keeps the doctor away, that kind of stuff. This is unmerited mercy to rebels like you and I. Romans 1 to 3. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The gospel is not God's reward. The gospel is not saying, uh, well, if you've got seven out of ten on the Ten Commandments, now you can live this way. Well, hang on a minute, this is South Africa. If you've got three out of ten on the Ten Commandments, now you can live this way. 
30% is the pass rate in this country. Did you know that? The gospel is not God's reward if you get three out of ten. And that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Please don't tell me you're a doctor and got 30% in your exams. God doesn't save us on the basis of our good intentions. God doesn't save us on the basis of getting a few things right. He saves us because we are rebels and completely lost without his mercy. God saves those who trust only in that promise of mercy, Romans 4. The gospel is not God's assistance. It's not that we're not quite good enough and we just need some divine spark in us. I hear this a lot these days. We need that divine spark in us. There's no divine spark for dead people. You and I are dead in our sins and the gospel, Romans 5, Romans 6, is merciful resuscitation to those who are under God's wrath. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is not God's requirements. God is not saying, follow these religious rules and you'll get to heaven. God is saying, Romans 7, you will never follow these rules. Even with your best intentions, you will never get it right. And God in his kindness and mercy rescues you and fills you with his Holy Spirit to enable you to live for him, Romans chapter 8. The gospel is also not God's preference. God does not save you because you are some preferred race or culture or education. God doesn't save you on the basis of some historical privilege. Speaking here about Israel, but it applies in many other factors too. Romans 9, 10 and 11. God saves you because of his mercy alone. Sums it up there at the end of chapter 11, verse 32. For God has bound all people, Jew and Gentile, over to disobedience so that he might have mercy on them all. That's the great summary of what Paul has said, not only in chapter 9 to 11, but chapter 1 to 11. There is no other way to describe the gospel than God's mercy. God's mercy to sinners like you and I. And our response to the gospel is always in, the, in response to what God has done for us in Jesus, which is summarized as his mercy. How do we respond to the gospel? Well, look secondly at this new life of worship that Paul unpacks here. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, as the new NIV translation says. It could also be translated as your spiritual worship, as the ESV says. Your true worship is uh, CSB or uh, the King James Version, your reasonable service, which, funny enough, is probably the closest, I think it's the New King James Version, uh, to the original language. Um, the original word is logic, where we get the word logic from, um, or reason. Uh, uh, this, is, this is the right thing to do, in other words. This is what you're saved to do. This is what you're made to do. It, it is fitting for you to respond to mercy in this way because this is what you're made for. This is ultimately what we're designed for. It's the uh, famous Westminster Confession, the first question. Uh, what's the chief end of mankind? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's what we're made for. Like fish are made to swim in the sea and birds are made to fly. We're made to glorify our creator, to worship him. And actually, everybody worships something. Everybody worships something. We can't help ourselves. We worship things. 
It's why celebrities get fans fawning all over them. It's why political parties get followers. It's why, it's why bands, musicians get fanatical followers. Um, because we're made to worship. People worship things. And ultimately, we are made to worship God. And anything else is idolatry. Paul says the Christian life, logically, is glorifying God, worshiping God. Now, of course, um, uh, as much as Paul encouraged us to actually participate in the singing today, we know that um, worship isn't just singing. Uh, it's not less than singing, but it is infinitely more than that. Paul says here, it's to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Uh, Paul's using very obvious priestly language here, referring to uh, the priestly sacrifices that were offered at the temple, but he's taking the sacrifices out of a religious context here. He's, he's putting it in life. This is what the Christian life is. The Christian life is giving yourself sacrificially to serving the Lord, to worshiping him is to be serving him. And the sacrificial language is actually real life. It's not in temples or cathedrals, it's not rituals in a church. We all know this. This kind of living sacrifice happens in houses and schools and universities and factories, on the streets, in sports field. Worship comes as we give our lives to living for Jesus. It's the Christian life. And the Christian life is described as sacrificial, a living sacrifice. Um, uh, it literally is saying, put your bodies on the altar, living. And of course, sacrifice involves pain. It involves you giving something up. It involves uh, a loss on your part. Um, some dying to self and living for God. That's why Jesus repeatedly said, and uh, I didn't speak to Paul this morning, but he's quoted the same verse, but it's many times in the Gospels, uh, Luke chapter 9, Mark 8, 9, 10. Whoever wants to follow me must deny himself, take up his cross or her cross, and follow me. That's sacrifice. That's dying. That's the Christian life. And we are to give ourselves as living sacrifices in following Jesus. I think it was John Stott who said, the problem with living sacrifices is they tend to keep crawling off the altar. You see, that's what we do. That's what we do. We come home all for you, Jesus. All for you, Jesus, especially if the singing was really good on Sunday. But on Monday, yeah, that altar looks very far away from where I am right now. And we do it all the time. We have to face up to this. The reality is, we don't actually want to live in obedience to God most of the time. We don't want to be selfless. We don't want to let others go ahead of us. We don't want to do that. We'll do it superficially at some level. But when things really cost us to do it, do we really do it? You know, sometimes I find myself thinking, you know, Lord, I've been a Christian 28, 29 years. Like, what have I really sacrificed for you? What have I... When it's really come down to it, have I actually paid the price? Have I done it? I often say to people, you know, the, the gospel is full of, 
full of paradoxes, full of paradoxes. One of the greatest paradoxes of the gospel is this, that the gospel is free, but it will cost you everything. The gospel is free, but it will cost you everything. And the test of how much you've really grasped that free grace of the gospel shows in how much of a living sacrifice you are in your life. Whoever, must be, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Paul's already said this. So much of what he picks up in these chapters has already been hinted at in, in the gospel that he has unpacked in chapter 1 to chapter 11. Chapter 6, verse 13, do not offer any part of yourself as, to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness, for sin shall not be your master, because you're not under law but under grace. What does it mean to live under grace and not under law? Well, Paul's going to unpack that here. In chapter 12, very specifically, he's going to unpack it. In all of these chapters, it's using your gifts to serve one another, chapter 12 from verse 3 onwards. It's loving one another biblically, that's seeking others' interests above yourself, in chapter 12 from verse 9. It's submitting to the government and the authorities under God, chapter 13. It's living out what it really means to love your neighbor as yourself, chapter 13 from verse 8. In chapter 14 and 15, it's accepting fellow believers without fighting, without condemning one another over secondary issues. Uh, that's a big section in Romans, funnily enough, chapter 14 and 15, which tells me it's a big problem in our churches, and certainly it is for the last 2,000 years. It's clear that the Christian life, my brothers and sisters, is a lifetime occupation. It's not a Sunday sermon or a six-week Bible study course. It is our life. It is our life. And if it's not recognizably your life outside of these walls, there's a problem. There's a problem. It's critical for you and I not to disconnect the depth of what is happening here. See, too many people in churches, in Christian circles, they see this and then they think, well, they've got to try and pin these things on their, like sort of Boy Scout badges. You know, I've... I've I've got to put on giving my tithe to the church. I've got to pin on helping others. I've got to get a badge for, I didn't swear all week. I've got to put on a badge for being a better parent. I've got to put on a badge for staying faithful to my wife. And we see it as kind of like badges to show that we've achieved these things. It's not like that. We can't pin on these things. It'll never work. We can't pin on good behavior. We can't do these things as superficial religious rules that now we must follow. It'll just turn us into more religious hypocrites. It's only going to work, my brothers and sisters, if it happens from within. Change happens from within. Thirdly and lastly, the goal of transformation. Verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Okay, well-known verse. And you can't miss the contrast between conformed and transformed. Conformed and transformed. The word conformed here is where you get the English 
word schematic from. It means to, um, to um, shape something according to a particular pattern or standard. And Paul is saying here that the world has its designs on us. The world has its designs on us and intends to shape us in a particular way. Whatever the mood of the day is, whatever the mood of the world is, it intends to shape you that way. And Paul says that's not what God's people should be doing. And it happens very easily and very subtly. Conformity often happens without you even realizing it. Um, I, was in no- I was in Northwest Australia um, preaching in a church up there, and they took me to this reserve where the wind never stops blowing. It never stops blowing there. And it always blows in the same direction. And the trees in this area, it's, it's a bit of a tourist attraction because there's nothing else. But uh, it's a bit of a tourist attraction because the trees all grow like this. And it's amazing. They're almost perpendicular to the, uh, uh, parallel to the ground. They, um, they're all like this. Um, it looks like they've all got stuck in some yoga pose or something. And, and for years, they just grow that way. And the wind just constantly blows that way. That's the, the trees have been conformed to the prevailing winds. And that's what happens to people. The prevailing wind of the day, the prevailing mood of the day, just over time gradually conforms you to that mood. The prevailing wind of world opinion. We, we know these examples. Um, there's, there's so many and it happens to us so easily, and we, we've been thinking about this a lot. There's even documentaries about how algorithms influence us on, online, um, uh, com, com, continuing to feed you stuff that you're interested in, and then just feed you more and more and take in that direction. Media does that all the time. Uh, it, it's one of the most obvious influences. Advertising works out how to influence you. Um, movies, uh, entertainment has a way of influencing you in a particular direction. Uh, we know this. Um, uh, um, even for ways of education uh, in the mid 20th century, early 20th century that the whole idea that science was going to be the savior of the world uh, that everything would get better because we now understood science and evolutionary thinking helped us to think that we've got to create the superman that was eventually going to come if we just bred the right people together I had a biology teacher who said we should actually just sterilize everyone that's inferior. You know, you've got too many pimples. And um, people thought like that. And that influenced people to such an extent that, of course, ethnic groups got gen- uh, uh, you know, suffered genocide and the World War II happened. Just because of a way of thinking that the world just conformed to. And too many people, even in Christian circles, buy into these things without even really coming back to the scriptures and examining this, without applying their minds to it. We just buy into what the world says. Too many times the church has been guilty of doing exactly what the world says. You want slavery? Let's have slavery. You want apartheid? Let's have apartheid. And we're doing the same thing now because the world wants a particular form of sexuality, the world wants a particular form of gender expression, and we're doing the same thing in the church. Making the same mistakes. And Hollywood shouldn't be so high and mighty about this because they were the ones who promoted misogyny and homophobia in the first place. Go look at the movies from the 1950s. Now suddenly that pendulum has swung the other direction. God, God's people. 
must be on their guard. Because even in the church, we too easily rubber stamp what the world wants. We're far more prone to conformity than we realize. Far more prone to it. What you set your mind on often eventually becomes what you think is right. So a thought, reap an act. Remember that old phrase? So an act, reap a habit. So a habit, reap a destiny. Romans 8, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. And those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. It's setting the mind on that which transforms. You transformed, where does it begin? By the renewing of the mind. You've got to get your mind right. If your mind is right and your thinking is right, your actions will follow. That word transformation is where we get the English word metamorphosis from. Metamorphosis is, remember your biology lessons, the caterpillar that becomes the butterfly. It's a complete transformation. It's a complete transformation. It's not just that you washed your hands. It's a complete change of who you are. And that is accomplished as your mind is renewed according to God's will by his word. And as Romans 8 reminds us, it's because the Spirit of God is at work in our minds. Change begins with the Spirit of God going to work in our minds, changing our thinking. Changing our thinking. And we need to be doing this. We too easily don't do this. And we're too easily caught up in what the world is saying instead of what the Word is saying. Some of the old disciplines need to come back into our lives this year, my friends. Some of the old disciplines need to come back into our lives. What is the first thing you look at in the morning? Think of these basic daily practices. What's the first thing you look at in the morning? What do you pick up next to your bed? Probably your phone or your tablet, if you're like me. The only reminder now that I have set on my tablet is my Bible reading reminder. I've disconnected all the other notifications. The only reminder I have is the Bible reading reminder. Because if my mind isn't occupied in what God's word has to say to me, other things will distract me. And it's easy to conform to what the rest of the world is saying to us. And you scroll through your phone and you flick through the channels, you listen to your peers and so on. Now, you can't stop the rain from falling. Let's be honest. I'm not telling you all to become monks and nuns. None of that. But, you know, you can open an umbrella. You can keep yourself dry when the floods are there. You can make sure that you are first and foremost, prioritizing time in God's word. Humanly, this cannot be done. But with the spirit of God at work in us, it is entirely possible. I think for many believers, this has been a dry season, this last couple of years. There's been so much turbulence, and there will be turbulence ahead. But if there's one thing that will help you and I fly through the storm, it is to navigate with an eye on God's word. And by the way, if you haven't done it yet, it's not too late to set up a daily reading plan. It's not too late to set up some time or to make a commitment to discipline your priorities in the morning and take in God's word before you take in the news. It's easy to do it. Read the Bible in a year. It's only four chapters a day. Read the Bible in two years, which is what I prefer. You get a bit more depth. Two chapters a day. Get a study Bible. It'll help you. Get a friend to read it with you. 
But make a commitment to do those things and get some habits back into your life if you haven't done it yet. And let me tell you, it is a delight when it does. It is a delight to, it's a delight to dive into God's word, to mine these treasures, to get your mind right according to God's word. There is no substitute that comes close to it. And when you're doing it, especially if you're doing it with someone else, it's a wonderful thing to do. And you will find what happens to you happens um, just like the scripture said. It will lead to praise. You may even sing something. What does Paul do at the end of chapter 1 to 11? He ends it in praise. Do you see that? The verses just before verse 1 and 2 of chapter 12. This beautiful hymn of praise at the end of 11 chapters of doctrine. 11 chapters of unpacking the beauty of the gospel of mercy. He gives this beautiful hymn of praise, verse 33 of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? That's a beautiful hymn of praise. And by the way, it's not some sort of mystical stuff going, we haven't a clue what God is like, so let's just kind of sing songs of unknowingness. We're not mystics. The great thing about this very song of praise tells us that we know enough about God to know that the depth of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God is unsearchable. We know enough about God to know that his paths are beyond us tracing out. We know enough about the mind of the Lord to know that we don't compare, that we can't counsel him on anything. That we can't say, maybe you should have done it that way, Lord. This is not saying God is unknowable. We're just kind of wandering through here in blissful ignorance. No, this is saying we know this much about God to know how awesome he is, how beyond us he is, how unknowable he is, how vast the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God are. That's why this prayer song comes. He's shown us enough. If you will only look at it, if you will only bring your mind to the word, delve deeply into its truths. You and I will see God go to work this year when that happens. Don't miss out on that. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. How we want to give you glory, Lord. How we how ashamed we are, how easily we just put it off, get caught up in the ways of the world, get caught up in the busyness of this world. Oh, how we want to be transformed by your word. Will you forgive us for so easily falling away from that and renew a commitment within us to discipline our days that we take time, two chapters a day, reflection of those words in prayer to you, a refocusing of our perspective as your word sets us right and straight, and how we thank you for the mercy of the gospel, which allows us to come back to the altar again and again. So vast is your mercy. In your kindness, keep us on your altar, we pray so that our lives may glorify you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. We're going to finish and sing. We're going to sing. Yes. Good. <laughs>